This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 44. I'm your host, Dill, and today we have a special episode comprised of bonus material from guests we've had on this year. Oftentimes, when I've finished an interview, I'll ask a couple of questions I either cut for time or just couldn't segue to, so these are those questions. So first up is bassist Jeff Pilsen of Dockin' and Foreigner fame. And this is a question I've been meaning to ask many of my guests, and that is, what do they do for health care? I think more and more you see these GoFundMe posts asking to help out a fellow musician or someone in a musician's family, and it got me wondering what their options are for health insurance. So I asked Jeff, and this was his response. What have you done for healthcare throughout your career? Does ASCAP well, give you or BMI? Well, ASCAP, I, was, I had ASCAP health for years, up until the early 2000s. Um, and it was incredible. I mean, all throughout the 90s, I, I would see a chiropractor five times a week. I'd, I mean, it was insane the amount of coverage I had and never paid a penny. The, I mean, the, the healthcare coverage in the 90s was just crazy. Yeah, it's funny, I think of the same thing. It's like, what, what's the... Like, yeah, then in the early coverage? 2000s, they changed the, the, the qualifications. Um, and I was even going to do SAG when I did the movie. Um, and then I found out that I'd only have it for a year, so why bother? And then I have to keep requalifying, and I wasn't right. going to qualify for SAG every year. I could have qualified <laughs> that year, but and then of course they merged, and it didn't matter. But then, but then uh, since uh, I, I've been married since 2002, and I, I don't remember exactly when, but sometime not long after we got married, around when we had our daughter, and our daughter was born in 2004, uh, we went to Kaiser, and we've been there ever since, which is mostly in California, almost exclusively in California. It's not great for the road. Um, but it's great when you're in California. And, uh, I mean, I had a hip replacement surgery uh, two and a half years ago that, you know, would have been well into, you know, six figures, as you right. can imagine. And it was $500. Oh, so, yeah, it was great. Good. Yeah. All right. Next up is Rolling Stone writer and best-selling author Gavin Edwards talking a little more about Taylor Swift. Oh, I was going to follow up with Taylor Swift. Have you? So I, I, I noticed that you did. I had it in my notes that you did a very early on right. thing. Have you? Have you had a follow up with her? Or I never have. My really? best friend Rob is sort of like um, uh, Rob Sheffield, Rob Sheffield. Uh, and uh, he has become like sort of like the Rolling Stone Taylor Swift guy, uh, and uh, she's actually like added songs to her set list because he's advocated for them and so on. And so I feel like to whatever extent there is like a Rolling Stone, uh, Taylor Swift interaction, I'm at the point where I should step back and like let Rob handle it. That's funny. I, I, I'm aware of that because I listened a little bit to their podcast. Yeah. I mean, I do remember at that time, like it felt like her career could be almost anything uh, that uh, I said she could be. Who married um, uh, Tim McGraw? Faith Hill. Okay. Uh, I said, you know, like she could be Faith Hill or she could be Elvis Costello. Uh, <laughs> and she actually ended up somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, sort of like, a, you know, like a bigger star than Faith Hill ever was, but, you know, sort of like, uh, but definitely like more of a songwriter than Faith Hill was as well. Yeah. I grouse that article, but she had kind of the, she had a business sense about her even at that young age. Yeah. No. No, I think that she's very, very savvy, both, uh, you know, sort of as an artist and as a businesswoman. And part of the, she's one of those, likes to affect a certain amount of guilelessness of like, oh, I just, here I am, you know, like, hello. I think 
she's very on top of her business. Yeah. So as part of my due diligence, I browse everyone's social channels, and that usually tips me off to what they have going on outside of music and performing. Uh, in Daughtry keyboardist Elvio Fernandez's case, it's golf. I was just going to ask you a little bit about golf. Oh, dude. So is your day is your day off? Is that your that's your what I try to do. Yeah. Do you get a do you do you get pretty much everywhere you, you want? To, I saw you got Beth Page Black on your. Uh, yeah, we this, this industry helps with hookups and stuff like that. Do you so. make your own arrangements, or do you say call, tell them who we're with, and make it happen? Um, sometimes a tour manager will hook it up, or our, man, our manager's a big golf guy, okay. uh, so he has a lot of relationships and. You know, some of these places are fans of the band, so they're always like, anytime you want to play, just let us know. But we have played Beth Page Black, Medina in Chicago, Chambers Bay in Seattle. Like, there's so many cool courses, but I, I'll, I'll play anywhere. Like, Do you I, play by yourself? Do you just pick up when you get there? I'll, or I'll just play by you, myself. Just... I'll, I'll go practice all day. I literally will spend a whole day at the golf course. Like, it, on a day off, like tomorrow, we have a day off in Atlanta. I'll Google closest golf course. If it's decent, I'll go there practice maybe play eat there you know I just love it's kind of my sanctuary mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of worse things to be addicted yeah, to no. especially in this business <laughs> you know very but, true I wish I was good at it I used to uh, not be and I'm still I, I, I've gotten a lot better I, when I started when I started playing on tour I think I like what was it last year we, we toured with Nickelback I was like a 12 handicap going into the summer and now I'm a 7.6 or something like that what other musicians do you end up do you ever hook up with other musicians that play uh, when we toured with Plain White Tees and the Goo Goo Dolls uh, Tim Lopez the singer of Plain White one of the singers of Plain White Tees was a golfer so he and I played a lot together uh, a lot of the crew guys play mm-hmm. so in the, on the Nickelback tour a couple of their crew played our, our monitor tech at the time played so but I, I'll play. I'm happy. Will you pack your clubs for overseas trips? No, <laughs> I'm not going to bring them to the UK or South Africa. It's just a pain in the ass to carry around. Yeah, I, I hate carrying them around here, but it's like I, I have to. It's my thing. These guys think I'm nuts. I'm like, dude, why do you like golf so much? I'm like, why do you watch movies so much? I don't know. Yeah. That's my thing. Hey, no, it's good. Good to get outside. It's funny. I, I talked to. You play, I mean, Alice Cooper, he's a huge, oh, huge, huge golfer. Yeah. Darius Rucker, there's so many. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know I usually ask people about their TV appearances. And while most get to do the late night talk shows, very few get to do Saturday Night Live. Maroon 5's Sam Farrar was lucky enough to do it twice and share his experience. Some frivolous stuff, but Saturday Night Live? Did you play Saturday Night Live? Twice now. Is that cool? The scariest I've ever been. Is it really? Oh shit! I should ask that. Well, I guess I still have it. <laughs> but yeah, we the we bus. went out for, we went out for the we went out to play uh, the they do like a pre like a, a run through. Yeah, they at, do that at like ten or whatever. Right. I, I could barely play guitar. That's so funny. This, when we actually went to do the real one, it was I, it was okay because we'd already done it like that one. But I mean, like I I messed. I was like, what? My hand wouldn't move. Scares I've ever been. That's funny. Because yeah. it's funny, I've, I've talked to people about TV shows before, and they say, you know what, when you're there, it's just cameras and it's a small audience, so you don't get the scope of what it is, and it's surreal. Yeah. But I get it. I get that. I disagree because t- TV is much more brutal on mess ups, right. out of tune, things like that. You, you really hear it. Whereas a live show, you can fuck up all the time. It doesn't matter. What was the first time you played? 
first TV show? Uh, no, uh, SNL. Oh, SNL. That was One More Night and Daylight, so that was... Two thousand twelve, from two thousand thirteen. Who was? Do you remember the guest? Yeah, it was. Um, oh, it's so funny because he was—he's not a comedian at all. Um, He—he uh, was in the 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 bow and arrow guy, uh, Hurt Locker guy. Oh, Jeremy Renner. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He was the guy, and I remember thinking, like, "You're not a comedy guy at all." <laughs> and he was fine. He was great. Nice guy. And then the second time we did, it was Sarah Silverman. Which was fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she was great. a blast. And we, we know her too. So. Did you guys was there? Did you guys get to go to the after party and all that stuff? Oh yeah, I know you get invited, but I just don't know. The first, the first one, stuff. the Jeremy Renner one, there was a bit more of an after party. The second time, I don't think it was as big of a deal. Um, and I think we caught them the season on when the, everyone was like a little fried. It, it didn't seem as crazy. I've heard those parties can be really crazy. That's so. <laughs> a. I've been a big show, fan of that show. It's funny to watch. I, I've seen it once live, but to be there and see like behind the scenes, it's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah, it's, it's fucking really crazy. Fun. It's a great show and. Um, I had just read a book called Everything I'm Cracked Up to Be by Jennifer Trinan, which was about her experience as an indie darling caught up in the major label bidding war. In it, she recounts her meeting with the head of Columbia, who uses Toad the Wet Sprocket as an example of how they nurture their artists. So I showed it to Toad's bass player, Dean Dinning, who had never seen it before, and he read it out loud for me. I just want to show you your little... uh it's right, uh, it's right down there. Just saying, using Toad as a reference of being a success. I mean, take Toad the Wedge Sprocket. Now, those are just some talented guys. Just like we're going to do with you guys. We picked up their first record and released it as is. But then what happens? A lot of nothing. Second record, still nothing. But we made a third record with them anyway, right, boys? Did we drop them just because things weren't going as big time as we'd anticipated? No way. No way. See, it's an, it's, it's an inspir- inspirational message of hope. Fucking A, no way. And why? Because that's not who we are. We're just not made that way here at Columbia. So then what happens? Third record, bam. Hit. Gold. Fourth record, bam. Boom. Hit. Hit. Platinum. And now we're making our fifth record with them, and we couldn't be more excited. See? Because we got patience. We're artist-friendly. We believe in big careers. Big Wig stands, takes another drag from his cigarette, and rests it in an ashtray on top of some shelves behind his desk. He walks over to his stereo, hits a button, then returns to his desk and falls into his black leather chair. He twirls it around once and stops facing it. He says, listen to this. Right? That's great. Everything I'm cracked up to be. Who, who, who would be head honcho at Columbia? Gosh, um... She doesn't give too many. Don Einer would have been at the time, but Don didn't smoke. I don't think Donnie smoked. So it, it might not have been him. Um, probably someone in L.A. I don't know. Don Einer was, you know, we were we were pretty, you know, we 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 saw Donnie quite a bit. He, he was very instrumental in getting us signed. We were one of the second people that got signed after they started their alternative department, and, and he was he was determined to get us. That's nice. So you had attention from the top. We did. Yeah, he really wanted the band. He he he, he understood what we were about, and um, and yeah, he was instrumental. That's great. Yeah, I love it. I'm often asked what my favorite episode is, and I say it's with Masters of Reality drummer John Leamy. It is episode 25, and it's just so fucking entertaining. 
There's major tour van crashes. There's a bar fight that ends with someone's nose getting bit off. And there's an epic drum off at Ginger Baker's house with John, Greg the Snap, and Ginger. If you haven't heard it, do yourself a favor and check it out. Like I said, it's episode 25. Now, for his bonus material, we talk about his artwork. Uh, I know John from, uh, I call it art school. It's a school of visual and performing arts at Syracuse University. And I know firsthand he was an amazing artist, so much so that he broke his collarbone playing rugby, his right collarbone. He was right-handed, so that was in a sling, and he began to draw left-handed, still better than everyone in the class. That's 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 how a legend grows, but that's a true story, and it's... Uh, it's, it's funny to, uh, to, to tell it again. But anyways, so he's a fantastic visual artist, and those talents caught the eye of you too, uh, for which he did some work for, and this is his experience with that. Yeah, the flat iron. I painted a bar in that neighborhood. Maybe that's what I was doing. Did you ever go to that place, Dewey's Flat Iron? Yeah. Those big murals on the, on the inside. There's one of Admiral Dewey in the crow's nest, and then the fleet of in manila bay burning you did those yeah it's funny i saw your uh your cargo site oh yeah which has a lot of good i mean it, i like the way you did it with the descriptions and stuff but you did a you did a mural where the guy had some like coming to god and he had to destroy yeah it. <laughs> my diego rivera tribute yeah that was fucked up yeah that picture was a polaroid that was the only picture i had of that yeah, it was uh, it was not too far from How did you find out? Did you go back and be like, what the fuck happened to my thing? A cousin of mine wanted to take a family member there to see it. And uh, the guy was like, oh, no, I have that painting gone. Burned. And I like, like, oh, you guys had a fire? <laughs> yeah, I called. And, yeah, the owner had, like, a religious conversion to, like, some sort of Santeria thing. And he had a witch doctor come in and... Evaluate all of his restaurants. A, a witch feng shui doctor. Yeah, and the, the witch doctor identified the painting as containing evil spirits, and not only did it need to be taken down, it needed to be destroyed. <laughs> so, so they burned it, and uh, it was cool. But you know, whatever. They paid me. They paid me like ten grand to make that thing, and um, they could have burned it the next day. I was gonna say, hey, you know, got a picture of it, and yeah. check cleared. I need to update that site. What was your experience with the U2 stuff? Oh, that was great. You know, I, I spent, I don't know, four years working with them. Um, was that at Spontaneous? It was while I was at Spontaneous, although it wasn't related really to Spontaneous. It's work that I brought to Spontaneous. Uh, it wasn't like they were working with Spontaneous. Mm-hmm. They were just working with me. But I met a woman named Catherine Owens, um, Irish lady, who... Um, I started designing content for what you know would be on stage with them while they were performing for like the Vertigo tour, I think, and um, and that was fun, kind of cool, uh, just weird little conceptual pieces. And one of the things I made was uh, a three D woman's head that had plants growing out of her mouth and sort of blooming around her head, and uh, and they really liked that, and so they asked if we could make a music video for one of their songs based on that concept. And I was like, fuck yeah, we can. Let's do this, yo. So so we did. And uh, it was awesome. I got nominated for a VMA. Lost to Missy Elliott video. Which sucked. But, um, you know, hanging out. Did you go to get to go to the ceremony and get the whole well, yeah. pop and circumstance? Yeah, red carpet, all the jazz. Oh, that's neat. 
Yeah, hanging out with Lou Reed. So that was kind of rad um, to be at one of those things uh, for art, you know. Um, it's not like I went to a lot of them for music. But um, it was cool because you two as people were really nice and down to earth and normal, you know. And, and Bono would show up at my office and make me look cool by, you know, giving me a bro hug and, and going into my room and closing the door. So um, working with them was really awesome. And that led into... Uh, U2 3D, 3D concert right, film. That's right. And uh, I worked on that. I did the the titles and all the posters and branding for that. And the first two or so minutes of the film I did, um, which was largely editorial, a little, little bit of 3D. So did that, and that led into working on the packaging of their next record, which is called No Line on the Horizon. Uh, and that project lasted for like nine months. It was really insane. It's a funny story. I made this 64-page uh, deluxe sort of coffee table book that people got if they bought the most expensive version of the thing. It was just lyrics and musings and photographs and, you know, all these Anton Corbin photographs and, you know, thousands of pictures taken of you two in the south of France and recording with their tea and bullshit. And we laid this thing out, like, every which way, me and Catherine and... Um, had all kinds of watercolor and overlay. It was really artsy, right? It had a lot of layered um, stuff, semi-translucencies, and uh, it was deep. But Bono would get these contact sheets every day of the photographs to choose from, uh, which were just printed out of like adobecontactsheet.org or whatever, right? And after months of looking at these contact sheets, one day he woke up and he's like, I want it to just feel like this. Right? White pictures. <laughs> and there went eight months of layery, delicate watercolor shit. And that's what the book looks like. It looks like a contact. I mean, it's... That's the epitome of the ad industry. Yeah. Well, the ad industry is bananas. And I know that's not an ad, but that's... that's it is. It, I mean, that's the epitome of commercial art. When you're doing art for someone else, it always comes back to like, you know what? I went home... And my wife had this great idea. And it's like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes the wife is right. Um, you can get lost in your own weeds pretty easily. Um, and it's a real skill to be able to be objective um, outside of yourself. Yeah. Especially when you've invested time and effort <laughs> in what you think is your brilliance in a thing. But this was fucked up. So, <laughs> uh, but they were cool and uh, yeah I had a a good run uh, making stuff for them it was you know it was the biggest band in the world at the time so it was it's a pretty good good yeah. scene it's wild yeah okay my last guest before this episode was drummer Michael Jerome I often ask musicians about their endorsement deals and how they came about so I asked Michael in addition to that, I had to inquire about something I read on his Wikipedia page and whether it was fact or fiction. And are you endorsed? Currently yeah. Endorsed? It's, it's mostly, I mean, the official guys that people know are Vic Firth, Zildjian, and Remo. Okay. The drums I play are like a buddy of mine in Austin that makes them. It's not, he's not a real company. He's right. just, I saw that it was like Austin Drumworks. Austin Drum yeah. company. company. He just made up a name, you know, but... We share the love of vintage gear and Gretsch drums yep. primarily. And so he 
he builds his drums based on what you're you know, custom to what your needs are mm-hmm. and what you want. He refurbished drums for 20 years and built them and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I went to his site. It looks pretty cool. It's really cool. I want more. But then I went to your Instagram and I saw you had a loner Ludwig one night. You had a uh, I'm playing, loner Ludwig. I'm playing constantly Ludwig playing and... kits. Everybody, <laughs> because, you know, one of the things that 9-11 did was make sure that you could not fly gear mm-hmm. for, for cheap anymore. Yeah. You know, you could slip grease a palm and have your whole arsenal on a plane. Uh, you can't do that now. If I carry my own gear, it could cost me, you know, an arm and a leg. So, <clears throat> you know, you hire kits everywhere you go. You know, it's on it's on backline when you get there. So yeah. you're traveling with nothing. And if you can, if you can, you know, and most drummers will take their cymbals or their snare, kick pedal, whatever, with them that they really, really need in their sticks. Um, other than that, yeah. How do they come to? How does it come to be? Like, how did you come to Zildjian, and how did you come to Vic Firth? And you know? better than Ezra. I mean, I, I could play my whole life doing building a resume, playing with everybody I'm playing with. And that means nothing. But you can play with a band like Better Than Ezra, who people know, mm-hmm. and it's it's an instantaneous deal. Do they come to you at that point? Like, no. as soon as you, if it's like a press release that you're with Better Than Ezra, is, is no. it, is it no. their my, people or your people? My tour manager saying, called them and said, uh, hey, you know, yeah. our old drummer, Travis McNabb, is, is gone. He went to Sugarland and he's doing that. We got a new drummer. It's almost like good news. Yeah, like, good we've got news. good news. We can, it's an opportunity to. Yeah. to you to, can keep <laughs> Travis, but we got another guy. You we got, got another guy you, got another you can bestow your, your gifts upon. <laughs> No, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. I remember back in the day trying to get Gretsch. Gretsch, uh, they're one of the most dif- difficult, but Gretsch deal, uh, Fibes deal, mm-hmm. Austin drums back in the day. They weren't interested. Now, are you double-jointed ambidextrous? <laughs> I, think, I think I was a... You know, that was in Wikipedia. And I, Wikipedia, I always take with a grain of salt. Of course. My buddy in high school, who I just talked to this morning started he started that wikipedia <laughs> and in his very poetic sense of and of i was gonna say are there days where you just you know you switch he's it up a freaking and clown up is what he is <laughs> and i love him to death and he started that and i have no, no one has any idea how to change it that's one of those things where i thought you know maybe i'll just go alice cooper on this and just leave it alone <laughs> you should you should start <laughs> hashtagging all your uh Social posts. Uh, ambidextrous. Double jointed ambidextrous. You know, most people are amb- ambidextrous. They just don't, they're not conscious of it. All right. That's a wrap on our bonus material from our 2018 guests. If all goes to plan, we'll be back next week with an all new episode featuring two thirds of an up and coming band that scored a Billboard Adult Pop Top 20 hit this past September. That's only two months ago, so the song's still out there uh if that doesn't happen we'll be back in february of the new year we're going to be taking a little break gathering some more interviews to share with y'all uh so help us end 2018 on a good note if you haven't subscribed to the show please do wherever you listen whether it's itunes spotify stitcher google play music or iHeartRadio. a huge help is to go to itunes and subscribe rate and then leave us a comment on the show Another big help is follow us on social. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
All right, enough peddling the wares. Episode 44. Goodbye, my friend. And good night, Cleveland. Thank you.